It's the Get Off My Lawn podcast for the week of December 6th, 2015. On tonight's program, we'll hear Friday the 13th writer Victor Miller say, said Halloween's making a lot of money, let's rip it off. And photographer author Kevin Eby tells us about his vinyl fetish. I do like to be totally immersed in whatever it is that's, that is being presented to me in the natural world. I love to be able to hear the birds or to hear the wind or to hear the water. And... This podcast is sponsored by Kevin's Bookmobile. Check out www.lulu.com forward slash Marusic for a selection of books authored by your genial host. Buy a paperback or download an ebook and help support the podcast. That's www.lulu.com slash M-A-R-O-U-S-E-K. And by our tip jar. Like what you've been hearing on the show so far? Want to hear more? Then help us out by going to getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com, clicking on the tip jar, and donating to the cause of creativity. No amount too large, no amount too small. That's getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com. I'm your announcer, Craig, and here's your genial host, Kevin. Welcome back, my friends, to the podcast that never ends. This is Kevin, your genial host. Craig is away, enjoying some leisure time this week. I'm here with, well, who am I here with? Come here, Zeus. Come here, Zeus. So my co-host today is Craig's dog, Zeus. Say hi, Zeus. Hi, Zeus. Hi. I love you. I love you. Zeus is a good puppy. I've known him not quite as long as I've known Craig, but I've known Zeus many, many years. He and I go back together. He's good people. I know there are uh, raging debates over which are better, dogs or cats. To me, it's a, it's a dumb debate. It's not even worth having. Dogs are awesome. Cats are not. Oh, yeah. I said it. Dogs rule. Cats suck. Mic drop. Boom. Sorry. This podcast is not afraid to take on controversial topics like these, ladies and gentlemen. If you were a child of the 70s or 80s, your nightmares were probably influenced by today's guest. I spoke to the man behind the This One Time at Camp meme, Victor Miller. If you like what you hear, thank us by heading to our tip jar or buying one of my books. You can learn how to do that by listening to the opening or closing credits. I won't bother you by repeating all of that now, so please check that out. In terms of what your support goes towards, I have health care, but two things I do not have are vision and dental. And as luck would have it, I'm in need of new glasses and desperate need of a little repair work on a busted tooth. It is, uh, well, bits of it keep falling off. And since two things, I think, again, not to sound controversial, but two things that are important are sight and the ability to eat without swallowing your own teeth, these are things that I feel that you could really help us out by uh, supporting the podcast and tossing a few shekels, tossing a few somethings into the tip jar, uh, buying one of my books. I hope you will enjoy reading one of those books, but if not, just just buy it. I don't what what do I care if you read it, and uh, you know do that. That's that's a nice way of supporting the show. So for now, no more uh, talk of dogs, and certainly no talk of cats. Blech, blech, cats, blech, cats, and uh, we'll check out uh, what what Vic Miller has to say. Joining me via Skype is a man with what I consider to be a bipolar writing history. He is known by many as the author of one of the 20th century's biggest horror films, Friday the 13th, but he is also a longtime writer for some of the biggest daytime soap operas of all time. Uh, Victor Miller is here today, and he came to us via a friend of the podcast, Michael Colomb. I hear you guys are uh, working on something together. Yes, we have. Uh, uh, Ian, uh, Martin Rogers, and I wrote a. Uh, a terrifying screenplay about two to three years ago, and um, I believe it's too expensive to sell at this moment, but uh, otherwise we're very happy with it. Nice. Care to divulge any details, or you're keeping it under wraps? It's called Eden Falls, and it's about um, a, uh, well, uh, what, what do you call this, uh, uh, snowboard champion who uh, gets into, sees something he shouldn't have seen, the old Hitchcock thing. Ah. The, uh, uh, the ordinary man sees something he shouldn't have seen and spends the rest of his, the, uh, the uh, movie trying to escape uh, the, the wrath of the guy he spotted. I'm you, can see, I'm, you see, I haven't been doing uh, any pitches. I'm a, I'm a terrible, I'm a terrible pitcher. The elevator pitch needs work, sir. <laughs> yeah, no, it needs work. This isn't worth a stepladder. Forget the elevator. Jesus. But it's been, it's, you know, it's been like three years, because in the meantime, I've written uh, uh, 
Oh, I wrote a screenplay with my son. I wrote another one with Carrie Fleming, which is we're trying to get funding for right now called Rock Paper Dead. And I'm um, working on a black comedy with a friend of mine who is also 75 years old and is a famous actor who will remain nameless for the nonce. <laughs> Fair but enough. We're, we're about to loose it on the world and then, then we'll be able to make it public. Well, nice. Well, uh, if I can have you hop into the Wayback Machine for a few minutes here, take us back to the uh, late 1970s when you were writing Friday the 13th. And, you know, my childhood memory of that era, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but, the, you know, the, the horror films, they were downright comedic. You know, you had the blob, and you had the thing, and you had these kind of, you know, slow-moving monsters. And, you know, I think the two movies that kind of changed that was Halloween and yours. Can you talk about, you know, what led to that and how that came about? Yeah, well, it, it, it's no accident that um, Halloween is um, is one is the first one out of your mouth, because uh, uh, the actual story of how uh, Friday the Thirteenth got made is that uh, Sean called me one day. We'd done a couple of movies, uh, family films that didn't make any money, and he called me one day and said, "Halloween's making a lot of money. Let's rip it off." <laughs> um, so uh, I went to the theater in Bridgeport, I think it was, and um, uh, looked at it, and I saw that um, uh, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter had had carved a really perfect model for the uh, for the screenplay, and so um, I didn't, you know, I didn't have to uh, steal anything other than their uh, their given circumstances that uh, seemed to work so well that that every uh, good horror movie like Halloween needs a, a prior evil, something that happened a long time ago uh, that seems to uh, infect the place that the, the opening shots are, are happening in. And, uh, and then that uh, you have to find um, a location or a holiday or something that makes it impossible for teenagers uh, in this case, Randy teenagers, uh, <laughs> it makes it impossible for them to just go to the National Guard or the state police and say, please help us, there's a madman trying to kill us all. Um, and in, in uh, Helen Carpenter's uh, movie, it was basically, it was Halloween. And anytime Jamie Lee Curtis tried to find help from the adult world, she'd knock on their doors and uh, you heard the grumpy voices inside saying, oh, it's just kids, forget them. Um, and so she was on her own, and uh, it, that was the hardest part for me to uh, figure out, um, you know, where I would find, you know, because I couldn't do Halloween, obviously, and I couldn't do uh, St. Patrick's Day. Or <laughs> Arbor Day, the movie. Arbor, yeah, Arbor Day, the movie. Arbor Day Part 3, yes. the trees strike back. <laughs> Don't give Stephen King any ideas. Oh, I think you and I should write that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, at any rate... Um, so it, that was the thing that took the longest part was to come up with a venue and uh, summer camp before it opened. Uh, seems so obvious once I hit it, but uh, boy, it was a long time to get there. And I think that's that's one of the problems with writing is that uh, uh, once once you find the idea, and if it's a good one, it seems obvious in a way, not a not a cheap tawdry way, but uh, you know that a. a, a kind of insightful thing because uh, summer camp was oddly for me um, something that my, my sister went to and my brother went to and I said no way that's too scary <laughs> uh, so I am not going to go there and that was years before because uh, 1979 I was 39 years old uh, but I still thought of summer camp as a very creepy place to be and um, and then the other thing is you have a bunch of Randy uh, teenagers who uh, will then spend their time uh, trying to get into each other's cots <laughs> um, and uh, and they get uh, knocked off because um, horror films are nothing if not Victorian they're hugely moral <laughs> and uh, what I what I most like about uh, Friday the 13th the difference because I said well you know they've got Michael Myers I can't do I have a twisted little creepy guy so I had a twisted, big, creepy woman. Right. Um, and uh, once we did that, and then, you know, using the, uh, who was it, Donald Pleasance was in the in Halloween, which, which Brit? Yeah, I, th I think it was him. All right, anyway. One of the creepy Brits. Yeah, you, you hire those guys for like five days shooting, and then you get to have a big name on your poster. But 
Um, so I knew going in that we were going to try to find, um, and it, originally it was Estelle Parsons, but then the scheduling conflicts happened and we got Betsy Palmer, which I am really glad for because I think she was absolutely uh, born for the role. And uh, so anyway, uh, you have to have um, uh, some sort of uh, star power and Betsy was it. And I knew that going in, um, we could only use her for five days, so she couldn't be stalking around, uh, slicing people up in every scene. Uh, the, the killings would have to be sort of indicated uh, as, uh, as sneakily as humanly possible. Um, so that's, and then, you know, you're off and running. Sure. Um, that was uh, how it all happened, and uh, uh, I... I uh, did in those days Sean and I were uh, lived 20 minutes away from each other I was working on an IBM Selectric he had a copy machine I don't have you know half the, the pages I submitted I don't have still kicking around but uh, that was just the way we there was no internet to uh, send well there was, there was sort of an internet but we didn't know how to use it <laughs> uh, and so I would drive pages over to his house or he'd come and pick them up and stuff like that uh, next thing I knew, um, you know, um, we were famous. And I, I watched it again over the weekend. If you if you kind of ignore the hairstyles, it holds up right. pretty well. <laughs> ignore the hairstyles and um, and pay particular attention to Harry Manfredini's score. Yeah, the every time I see that, yeah. I just screened the movie a couple of months ago. Um, at Dolby, the, uh, the, at the big headquarters in uh, San Francisco, they've mm -hmm. got a, a, a theater that you would just die to sit in. It's got speakers just about everywhere. Wow. And um, so I watched, and they have a film club, so this was kind of an extracurricular activity for them. So nice. I came and we did a, a screening of Friday the 13th. And I heard Harry Manfredini's music on these incredible speakers. And it's just, it's it's an absolute marvel. It's, it's a gift. And I think there's so many parts of Friday the 13th that came together by magic, by karma, by whatever. Uh, you get uh, Sean and me and Harry and Tom Savini and Betsy Palmer and um, you're off and running. And it was just uh, quite quite a, um, an incredible thing. Now, you've had your uh, writing hand in, well, I, I almost describe you as bipolar in the worlds in which you mm -hmm. inhabit in writing, because in addition to the horror genre, which you're probably most known for, uh, your fans of horror films might not know you from your soap opera writing as well. So, <laughs> soap opera and horror have a great deal in common. They, they do seem to share sort of that rabid fan base, you know. Oh, they, you know. Yes. I mean, <laughs> it, in, in any other universe, uh, the things that the late, wonderful David Canary did as Adam Chandler or uh, or Phil Carey did as, um, what's his name, Buchanan, uh, Asa Buchanan on One Life to Live, the, mm -hmm. one. the things they did were horrific. I mean, uh, uh, at one point, I believe it was, uh, uh, oh, God, uh, uh, David Canary's character, Adam Chandler's kidnapped um, Erica Kane and took her to an island in um, in uh, Canada somewhere, and uh, and held her against her will. And you know, the, it was it was pretty horrific, but it was it was melodrama. It wasn't horror, but right. uh, it was just a very very odd and wonderful thing. And plus, <laughs> what I really liked about the writing of uh, soap opera, besides the regular paycheck, was uh, that it was group writing. And, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm not really a loner. I'm, I'm not cut out to be a, uh, you know, a, a J.D. Salinger. <laughs> well, I sense that already. You keep talking about all the projects you're currently collaborating on other people. Oh, with. yeah. I mean, it's, uh, they, th that's pretty much an upshot of having worked um, collaboratively with these other people because, um, you know, it's, it's nothing a writer would like to confess to, but other people do make you better. Um, you know, if you choose the right people and don't just fight them and say, how dare you, this is perfect, <laughs> but don't ever change anything I've written. I mean, uh, film and television are cooperative arts or crafts, whatever you want to call it. Um, the actor's going to change your lines. Um, we At Another World, we had, oh God, a, a leading lady and her leading man who every morning would rewrite all their love scenes and they just got awful. Um, <laughs> And there was, you know, it's up to the producer 
on on the studio to um, to uh, get a, a whip and a chair, but a lot of the producers just um, sort of fell over and, uh, and and yielded to the worst instincts of their actors. I imagine but, with how many pages they've got to shoot a given day, they don't have yep. time for much drama on the set. They just kind of have to keep it going. That and if the ratings are down, um, you know, then then you've got the the network and the sponsors and everybody sort of breathing down your neck. So it's a it's a real um, dancing kind of uh, deal. But it was it was great fun on on a number of occasions. A lot of time it was just slogging around in the pits. <laughs> but, um, Did you get to invent any of those cool soap opera names, the Cass Winthrop and all of those? Oh, uh, I don't know. I can't remember because <laughs> stuff was so. Um, uh, you know, I remember the, the 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 few things. You know, I invented this. Uh, oh, Jeremy, I guess his name was. He he was the uh, um, a Buddhist monk type who fell in love with Erica Kane and had taken a vow of celibacy. And so, in the writing team, as we were sitting around the table, we said, "Well." He's got he's got a fellow celibacy. He can't sleep with Erica, and uh, and our shorthand for that was that he had a knot in his schwanz. Uh, and I said, "Well, they said how they looked at me because I was a practicing Buddhist at the time. They said, how do you untie the the, uh, the, the knot?' knot? I, said, <laughs> I said, I don't know because it's not really part of the tradition that I'm in.'" But I guess he'll have to go back to Tibet, wouldn't you think? And so we sent him back to Tibet or somewhere, and uh, so he could he could have it uh, untied. And then uh, he and Erica got together again. So that was one that I I, I still am titillated by. And the other one was uh, I was on the phone with Agnes Nixon, who was the wonderful uh, originator of half of these shows, and. Uh, and we were on a conference call with her and oh, Megan and all these other people I forgot, um, my, my other co-writers. And um, we didn't know what to do with Bianca, who was uh, a now older version of uh, Erica Kane's daughter. And one of the problems with, um, with having um, an age gap like that is that the older person uh, is not happy with the younger person, especially if you're dealing with two women. Mm -hmm. um, at least uh, that was our experience. So whatever Bianca was going to do or be or whatever her story was, it couldn't upstage Erica Kane, her erstwhile mother. Um, and uh, so after about four or five years, it felt like it, four or five hours on the phone, <laughs> I just, I stretched to the limit. I had no other ideas. It suddenly came to me, how about if she's a lesbian? And there was a long silence as everyone waited to see what uh, Agnes Nixon would say, and as much as she was the, the, the goddess of all soaps. And she said, I love it. And I said, oh, thank God. Um, <laughs> And with that, uh, Erica Kane's daughter became a lesbian. It solved all of our problems because uh, they would never compete for the same men. Right. Uh, and and the character of uh, Erica Kane could uh, come across as a wonderful, liberating, uh, accepting mother, as opposed to the bad kind. And that was that was some of the nicest parts about doing soap operas that we could sneak in uh, left wing propaganda, <laughs> <laughs> like like. Uh, not hating people who had AIDS and yeah. stuff like that. That we did that early on. Uh, we had a character with AIDS at um, at all my children, and so uh, that was that. There were good times, but it was it was just it. I loved making up stuff. Yeah. I imagine you know most shows have what they call a show bible. I imagine the show bibles on those soap operas must be the size of a house. I don't know. I never saw it, but yeah, we had um, there was one person uh, kind of a. Um, some uh, between being secretary and being a writer uh, who had to be in charge of all that stuff. Um, and I don't know how she did it, uh, or he in some cases, but, um, you know, you would write a scene for in a breakdown of what, what you thought should happen, and you'd say something, and, well, uh, Tad has a couple of martinis and goes out, and then you get this note back from the, the, uh, the uh, clerk, whoever, whatever we called her, and um, she said, Tad hasn't drunk in two years. 
And I said, oops. <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff, as small as that and as large as, uh, no, actually they were married five years ago. So <laughs> this is not new. Um, right. So that was, that was good stuff. Yeah, but it's kind of interesting as you see like a lot of the shows i know you worked on another world which has been off the air for a while and a couple of other ones and were, rightly so <laughs> were, 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 you, were you there when uh, bay city shut down its uh, its borders or were you uh no no i'm i'm sure i helped contribute to it <laughs> by, by having been there earlier but um there was a I'm I'm telling all kinds of stories out of school, but it's too late to to punish me. <laughs> um, but uh, another world was owned by Procter and Gamble, Lock, Stock, and Barrel, and um, they were in charge of anything. So it wasn't a question of you know over at uh, all my children, we'd have uh, Procter and Gamble stuff um, commercials, but Procter and Gamble did not own the show, so we could we had some freedom. You didn't want to piss off the sponsor too often, but. Uh, at another world, it was Procter and Gamble, and the same was that um, they had another show. But they were so so conservative and so cowardly um, that I think they single-handedly helped uh, drain all the blood out of the the thing. <laughs> um, and for instance, and as an example, it was Guiding Light um, was one of the others they they owned, and I came up with this plot that I will take to my grave as one of the best things I've ever done. Um, where, because I had, by that time I had been in the business for at least 10 or 15 years and I had written enough scenes where, you know, that you wonder whose baby is it. And so there's Kevin and Victor are the two fathers and they're waiting for the uh, DNA results to come out. And uh, the little orderly comes out always on a Friday and says, I have the results. And then you come back Monday to find out whether Kevin or Victor is the father of little Jeremy or whoever it is. Well, I wanted a scene in which the guy comes out and says, well, I have the results, and because they're twins. And um, he, has a, he says, I have the results. And he says, uh, Kevin, you are, the, you are the father. And I go, oh, God. And he says, and so are you, Victor. Uh, <laughs> and because my wife had seen in the New York Times that this... Uh, this prostitute in Berlin had been with two different guys, one black and one white, uh, and had what I guess it's called what fraternal twins. Oh. Um, anyway, uh, so she had a uh, a black baby and a white baby, and uh, it's not a norm, but uh, so she had these two twins. Uh, that's redundant. Anyway, <laughs> she had twins: one one black, one white. And I said, "My God, this is wonderful! I can have a scene I've never seen on soap opera before." So. We convinced, uh, Megan was the head writer then, we convinced uh, Procter & Gamble to let us do it, and we did. And what I wanted to have, ultimately, was kind of like uh, Three's Company. So you've got <laughs> the two fathers living with the mother and these two babies, because each father is going to do the right thing and wants to be a full-time father for the kids. Right, but only to their own kid. Yeah, for their own kid, and, and you know, they want to do the right thing, and so... You end up with, um, yes, hugely comic situation, but also with uh, all kinds of, if you think about the ramifications of that, these two guys look at each other, each one holding his own little baby to his chest, and, and the mother saying, oh my God, um, this is not what the Mormons had in mind. <laughs> and so uh, it's just so filled with possibilities and rich and whatnot. So. Uh, we were fired. Megan and I were both fired shortly afterwards, uh, and they wrote backwards with the new head writers, um, and uh, said that it was they were not the uh, the fathers of each, uh, but that the guy in the lab had switched the results around and screwed it over. Ah, uh, they undid uh, your work. They undid. They wrote backwards, and that's something you can do in soap, and you can't sure. do in movie. But um, it just. Uh, it was, I think, the uh, the kind of the hallmark of why soap quit, because the audience moved on and they didn't, because they were so busy making sure that they did not anger anyone who had um, who bought diapers or cleaning fluid or whatever <laughs> they were buying, uh, because you just can't you can't work uh, you know so conservatively so cowardly. 
Yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting too that you know in the two genres that you've kind of played in, is, you know, as you've been a writer, there there really isn't much. You know, you don't see a rerun of soap operas on TV, but pretty much every month of October, you know, you're going to see Friday the Thirteenth reemerge somewhere. You know, come rain or come shine, it's going to be there again. And it's kind of interesting that one has the longevity, and one is very much in the moment. It's there and then right. it's gone. Yeah, no, I, I used to get checks um, when when All My Children was being shown in Europe, uh, and those, those were always nice to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, the Europe caught up very quickly and had its own soap operas, and I love watching some of the, the Spanish telenovelas. And oh, yeah. yeah I, li- I lived overseas and was watching some of the U.S. shows, you know, translated into Russian. Right. And you would see, like, they had two soap operas that came on in the 90s, the Sunset Beach and Passions. And when, you know, they they were hugely popular in the country I was in, but when one of them was canceled, they just decided the other one, because both were owned by NBC, they just decided the other one was a continuation of the same. They changed the name, and nobody seemed to notice or care that all the characters were different, all the names were different, all the settings were different. They just, you know, that one's popular, we'll just call it the same thing and keep it going. Oh my lord! I, I knew a lot of people who worked on all those. I mean, there was a really nice, um, with with some signal exceptions. There was always a pain in the butt somewhere, but uh, it was a really nice bunch of writers uh, who we all kept getting moved around uh, because, as Sam Hall, my first um, head writer, told me, he said, "Once you learn this craft, uh, you have a basically a, a kind of a lifetime." Uh, free salary because um, it's very specialized. Uh, it's not like any other form. And one, once you learn the basics and you're any good at it, um, they've got to hire you because you you can't just suddenly train a writer who's had a uh, a one act done off Broadway mm-hmm. uh, into how to string a story on for <laughs> twelve months, you know, and then and how to how to work. the The fire marshal runs half the shows because he says uh, you can only have eight sets. And then the uh, the guy in the uh, in the in the money office says, "Well, you can only have eight sets, but um, two or three of them have to remain up." But when you're going from one day to the other, because uh, it costs too much with the stagehands and with the teamsters to right. move those sets back to storage all the time. Right. So you're really writing. It's, um, uh, it's uh, Shakespeare did not have these problems. He just, <laughs> You imagine a forest of Arden, but um, here you had to go buy the forest of Arden or rent it, and, uh, <laughs> and then move it out the next morning. Yeah, I used so. to work on the NBC lot where they did Days of Our Lives and a couple uh-huh. of the others, and so I would see the sets kind of come and go, and see the, you know, cast members in their various stages of dress and undress, heading to the commissary for things, and you know, it it always tickled me to see some of the people. You know, the, there'd be the bedroom scenes that would obviously be taking place, and there would be one of the actresses, you know, fixing herself a salad in the commissary wearing not much and negligee. yep and just you know and all, all the guys pretending not to look but you know kind of going back to the the friday the 13th obviously just because i know that's where a lot of your fans are you know coming from yeah you know you wrapped up that movie just giving it the end for the sequel you know sudden suddenly out from the lake comes the boy did you do that knowing there a sequel would be happening, or was that sort of a big, you know, reveal? Because you know, that thing has been invented and reinvented and sequeled right. countless times over the last well, thirty-five years. Uh, no, I had no idea. Um, my entire approach to Friday the Thirteenth was that it was going to make as much money as the two movies Sean and I had made before, which was <laughs> nothing. Um, so I had no faith that it was going to go anywhere. I, you know, I, obviously I did my best work. I didn't uh, blow it off, but um, I just had a feeling that uh, we were the little kids in the in the block, and uh, and we were not going to be able to compete against all these monsters because I just didn't know anything about Hollywood at that time. Um, so no, I had uh, no no faith that it was going to go anywhere. And in fact, the the ending. Um, I got a call, you know, I'd done a couple of drafts and I got a call from Sean and said, we need a chair jumper at the end. And I said, you mean like Carrie? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, Jason ought to come out of the water then. Um, <laughs> and uh, because, you know, and if you look look at how it's structured, it's, ex- it's almost shot for shot like Carrie. Uh, the hand comes out of the grave, da, 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 a girl wakes up in the ho- hospital room. Um, same thing exactly in Carrie. And 
Um, and so that was that was my focus was just how to give you the maximum shock, of the, or as Sean called it, the chair jumper yeah. at the end. And in fact, people do jump out of their chairs. Oh yeah. I'd, I'd honestly so, forgotten how it ended when I was watching again over the weekend. Yeah, yeah no, it's, and and I I see it two or three times a year because I um, I do a number of sort of you know charity things and um, uh, because it's just a it's a nice way to raise money for local things like I did a local parochial school was doing a, a fundraiser and. Um, I was auctioned off. I bring the movie to your house, and you can have as many dinner guests as you want. And then I do sort of a, <laughs> a, um, a writer's voiceover as we go through the movie. And um, but <laughs> I was I was auctioned off in the same auction with because uh, we we live very clear to, uh, close to Emeryville, mm. which is where Pixar is, and so. They auctioned off a lunch for you and four guests at Pixar and a guided tour. And I think I went for like $1,500, and that one went for like 8000 or something. I was going to say, did you bid on the lunch? See, that would have made it interesting. No, I, I, <laughs> but, um, it, uh, but so I, I see the movie, and um, I am, I'm just amazed. Um, that's that's the the shocking thing is that we're really talking 1979. I was 39 years old. Um, I was I was trying to sell my blood to this um, company that was studying antibodies, and I'm, I I gave them a sample, and and they said, well, you don't have enough antibodies, so they wouldn't even give me the fifteen dollars. Uh, <laughs> and then the next thing I know, um, Gene Shalot is saying that Sean and I should be put in prison or, um, for about foisting this horribleness on the uh, on the country. Well, you found you made the one movie Gene Shalit didn't like. Um, <laughs> I don't think so, but just, I mean, we and and then we had uh, women saying that um, horror was Victorian and anti-woman, and I said, wait a minute, I got the only female killer. Uh, yeah. in horror that we know of these days and uh, so don't be attacking me in fact over the years I've gotten a number of people's dissertations women in women's studies programs who are sort of extolling uh, Mrs. Voorhees as their uh, their go-to woman and in fact I uh, I found out what 15 years after the, the movie came out from my uh, my then psychologist that um, I think he said, um, I, I can't believe you don't know why you made Mrs. Voorhees the killer. And I said, because well, I couldn't have Michael Myers be the killer. What do you think? <laughs> and he said, no, because she was the mother you never ah, had. He went deep into your psyche. Oh, well, he, he was paid to. <laughs> My God. He had to earn his money. So I said, what? He said, well, because your mother... Uh, you know, as uh, as barely all right as she was, um, would have said, uh, if you drowned, you know, I told you not to go swimming after you had lunch. And, uh, <laughs> and but this one, somebody doesn't pay attention to you and lets you drown, and she goes and kills people. So uh, this is the mother you always wanted, the one who would uh, take bullies out and strangle them. Um, and would have would have just made your your youth much happier. And I said, well, I guess you got a point there. And it's it's funny how um, you know we say that uh, writing is even even so called trash writing uh, uncovers marvelous mystical things in your psyche. And I love and it. It's, it's yeah. interesting to me that like you know you seem a fairly good natured guy, and it's like a lot of the people I know that write some of the darkest stuff have some of the most positive outlooks on life and some of the best senses of humor around, you know, and then you see some of the comedians, you look at the state of comedy right now, <laughs> you know, they, they are best known as being, you know, morose and depressed and, you know, unfortunately in some cases even suicidal. So it's kind of interesting to see the flip sides of the coin. You know, that is a wonderful, I've never seen the universe that way. That is absolutely <laughs> brilliant because, I mean, I... I know some comedians. Uh, I love them dearly, and their work is fabulous. Um, and I can't, you know, uh, we exorcise our fears. I mean, I think everybody's uh, these days, especially, is um, kind of hyper vigilant. We're all afraid of something, and some of us are more afraid of uh, things than others. And 
Um, I was raised in a kind of a loony household, and so I've always been on guard, and um, and and yet the, the, I was never, you know, this is fun. You're really making some connections for me because <laughs> one of the, one of the things I have said in interviews before, and I think is so jolly, but I said I would rather have written Airplane um, because that is my one of my favorite movies, yeah. and yet. You're now suggesting to me why I didn't. I'm better than your psychoanalyst, see? <laughs> you really are. You're, you're just all working together for me. This is my karma. Uh, but it, if I had been the person who could write um, an airplane, then I would be suicidal now. Whereas I wrote Friday the 13th, and I'm happy as a clam. Well, well yeah, explain pain. that. Like, you did it fine. <laughs> But, I mean, could you actually sit down with somebody now and say, all right, look, you want to be happy, write horror. You want to be sad and deep, be and it, Jerry you know, Seinfeld. There, there is right. something to be said for, as you said, sort of the, you know, not, not to put a play on the horror genre, but exercising those demons of figuring yeah. out, you know, where they, where they need to go out. And in your case, you know, your darkness went onto the page, and the yeah, rest I mean, of your life, you know, seems fairly, you know, content by comparison, I guess. That's... Yeah, well, I, and it's... Um, I guess laughing in the face of horror um, is is and but it's a control because I know a lot of comedians also talk about bad things happening. Right. Um, certainly, Bill Maher is one of those, and um, but he seems very dark. Um, and uh, but I mean, just as a uh, silly, obvious example, uh, I always looked under my bed as a child, and. Uh, <laughs> And sure enough, for the first time ever, we got uh, Mrs. Voorhees underneath the bed, played by Tom Savini and assistant, uh, putting an arrow through Kevin Bacon's uh, windpipe. Right. And, uh, uh, and that that must have helped. And then the axe in the face, I was always worried that somebody would punch me in the face. And uh, uh, what could be better than having an axe clean uh, one, your face? One step further. <laughs> one step further. I mean, you know. Um, it has to. It has to have played some role, and then, of course, with soap opera, um, <laughs> with soap opera, our only, you know, I, the first week I was at uh, uh, One Life to Live, um, Sam, we, 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 in that one, you had to go in five days a week. It was really crazy. We sat around a table. It was before the internet, so we couldn't do conference calls and all that. But sat around a table, and and I, every, we couldn't come up with anything for Clint and Vicky and. Bo and Asa and all those guys, and um, I said, well, why don't we get uh, Clint and Vicky married? And um, uh, Sam said, uh, why? And I said, well, because I've been reading the fan mail. I thought I was going to be helpful. I've been reading the fan mail. Everybody wants to marry me. And Sam looked at me with this great patrician face, and he said, yes, Victor, and then what would they do? Be happy? <laughs> And I suddenly realized I had to adopt uh, a different uh, worldview. Yeah. Because we weren't there to do happy. We were there to do awful things. Right. And the most surprising thing was once we were, a, a year later, we were really stuck with something. And I said, uh, or Sam said, well, what's the worst thing that can happen to a person? And I, coming from my own personal experience, I said, he would be embarrassed. And he said, are you kidding me? <laughs> I said, well, it's the worst thing you could do to me. And, <laughs> I'm so sorry. But, um, yeah. Reminded anyway, me of a story. Uh, I forget the name of the guy that created uh, WKRP in Cincinnati, but uh, ah. he used to tell the story. He, the, that show was always on opposite Little House on the Prairie. And his joke was that every time WKRP would start to get a bump in the rating, someone at Little House would blind a child. <laughs> And he said he, you know, he couldn't compete with that. There was nothing he could do, you know, that was going to bring in the viewers. <laughs> it was so hard thinking this stuff up. I mean, I was so envious. I was at One Life to Live when all my children, um, I was Wisner and uh, and uh, Lorraine and those people, they were doing, um, oh, they had, uh, God, Tad's Awful Father. Um, well, I've forgotten what his name was, but anyway, he had planted a bomb in an elementary school, and it was so cool, and um, it was so outrageous, uh, and uh, and so uh, of course he he was trying to blow up Tad's mother, I guess, mm. and um, 
uh, so it, it, they didn't kill kids or whatnot. But I thought they really went where the the uh, buses do not run, and, mm-hmm. and that's why at that point, All My Children was one of the most successful shows on television. It kept beating One Life to Live, which had been higher than them, and it was because they went uh, all kinds of crazy. She, uh, Agnes, invented Billy Clyde Tuggle. Is crazy uh, kid from um, Arkansas or wherever they started and uh, she had all these wild people um, coming around and and it was and it was just neat and then uh, what started to happen that was Agnes owned the show I mean she didn't own the show she owned all the writing package and then what happens the network started taking over more and more and more and she sold it to the network and at that point the now the editing came from the network mm. and they just didn't have uh the balls that agnes did yeah and so everything as i said earlier about procter and gamble everything got a little bit more safe a little you know let's not go too far and i'm i'm embarrassed to see young and restless as the top show in the whatever <laughs> it, it's always was boring the crap out of me it would move so slowly and Victor Newman, one more time. That, that was always my grandmother's yeah. favorite one. So. No, I can't. I cannot fight success. What can yeah, I say? that's my, my mom's was Days of Our Lives. My grandma's yeah. was Young and Restless. Right, and I I loved going to parties with people, and uh, they say, "What do you do for a living?" I said, "Oh, write soap opera." And said, "Which one?" And I said, "Oh, much only." Said, "Well, I don't write, watch that crap." And then five minutes later, say, uh, "Is Tad going to marry Dixie?" <laughs> At one point when I was there, we were reputed, All My Children was reputed to be the number one show at the uh, at the Harvard Law School cafeteria. So we were we were getting a real primo audience. Oh, yeah. yeah you, and, you, you know, you never know where those, come you, know, you know, come yeah. from and, and, and exist from. I so said when I was at NBC, one of my jobs, one of my first jobs there was in as an NBC page. We used to sit in the ticket office, and the NBC switchboarders would send us all of the, let's call them, interesting characters on the phone. <laughs> and a lot of them would be the soap opera fans, you know, needing to speak to, you know, Salem PD because Bo Brady was in trouble or, you know, whatever <laughs> else it would be. And genuinely believing they were watching a documentary, you know, at lunchtime every afternoon and those those were fun calls <laughs> those are the same people who used to uh, beat beat uh, our villains with umbrellas when they saw them on the bus yep <laughs> well listen victor it's been a pleasure sure. talking to you and do you have anything coming up in the immediate future that we should be aware of well um you know in a month Let's see. Uh, <clears throat> send me an email because I'll uh, I'll give you the the scoop on this um, the screenplay that I've most the the big black comedy. Um, it's it's fabulous, and um, we're going to hope to hope to sell that one. Unfortunately, the um, the big black comedy is um, going to be the more expensive of the two. I mean, <laughs> it's minimum like fifty million, but uh, whereas the horror movie we could do for one million, five million, anything yeah. in there. Uh, so, and if anybody's got any money, send it. Uh, well, wait, well, I got to make the money on the podcast first, so you know I oh, get a cut. Right, well, <laughs> just take skim twenty percent off whatever comes through. <laughs> you were talking about selling blood earlier. I'm like, hey, wait, where, where, where can you do that? Because I'm, I'm looking. <laughs> you have to go to a, dr- a pharmacol- pharmacological company that's doing studies on stuff, and they're always looking for guys with uh, with whatever they're looking for. Uh, well, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure I fit some profile. kind of profile. I'm going to go look into that one. <laughs> Mr. Miller, sir, I thank you for your time. You have a great rest of the day. You too, and that was a delight, Kevin. Uh, thank you so much. Bye now. Bye-bye. It's time once again for our shameless pandering to hipsters and audiophiles alike. Here's Kevin with today's Vinyl Fetish. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Victor Miller. He was a cool guy to chat with. I want to thank Michael Colomb for putting the two of us together, uh, getting the communication line started, and hopefully my goal one day is when uh, Victor Miller is down in Southern California to get Victor and Michael and, well, Craig and even Zeus, if Zeus wants to, and I all together in the same room and just sit down and, and chat as a big gang, as a big group, as, as a big bunch of, well, old bastards, I guess, that just we all want to sit and talk about how things were better in the good old days. That's that's what old bastards do, right? 
Anyway, my guest next week will be Kevin Eby. He is a photographer whose work can be seen all over the place. He has uh, published a book. He's got a website out called livingwilderness.com. And I think you will enjoy hearing him chat just as much as you enjoyed hearing Victor Miller say a few words earlier. And uh, to check it out, just a little preview, here is Kevin Eby's Vinyl Fetish. I do like a lot of uh, classic uh, classic albums from the 80s. Um, I, you know, I, I'm generally somebody who focuses more on the song, so I listen to a lot of singles as opposed to to full albums. But uh, right. you know, albums that I would the, there are a handful of albums that I will listen to all the way through, um, and those are either of the Traveling Wilbury albums. Oh yeah, Volume One and Volume Three, which confuses yes. everybody. Love George Harrison's sense of humor. <laughs> um, Peter Gabriel's Cell is another one that um, yeah. you know I love to dig out from uh, time to time. Um, and otherwise, I like a lot of singer-songwriters. I'm, I'm really attracted to music where it is performed by the person who actually wrote it. I think a lot of times with a lot of music, when it's, it's somebody singing something that somebody else wrote, I, I just don't really feel like there's a, a full connection there that, you know, it's, it feels a little disjointed to me. And, you know, when you hear somebody performing their own work, conveying their, their own emotion, I think it's, it's, you know, a much more powerful result. There's a, a woman named Katie Herzig who, um, any of her albums, you know, I can listen to all the way through. Uh, we had, Jennifer and I had discovered her because she used to uh, be with like this traveling band of up and coming musicians. Um, it was 10 people and they were from Tennessee. So they went by 10 out of 10. <laughs> and we had gone to this concert in Seattle because we had, we had known of another, another one of the 10 and when Katie Herzig, you know, had her turn to come up, you know, we hadn't heard of her before. Just within like the first few bars, it was just um, she did a song called uh, Hologram. And it was just, you know, as she was, you know, even in the first few bars, just floored by just how powerful the song was and just how sincere, you know, her voice was. And uh, I think she has like six or seven albums now. Uh, the earlier work tends to be. Uh, a little more in the country realm, much more acoustic. Her last two albums have been uh, much more heavily produced, more in, into synthesizers. But I actually think either end of that spectrum is is great work and definitely worth checking out. Well, you gave me a pretty good comprehensive list. It's almost like you listened to the show and were prepared. <laughs> now, I love music. I have a stack of CDs right here. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, as I've told people, you know, I am a, I am a big fan of, of my iPhone and my iPod. You know, I could never part with them, but there is still something to be said about putting the needle on, on the vinyl and just with all of the oh, natural I... cracks and pop. You know, like you said, as a photographer, you sit down and you want to capture the sounds, you know, that are around you. And to me, that's the best experience of doing that is, is the good old-fashioned vinyl record. It's like, yes, the portability. You know, I, I've seen, I think there were old uh, 57 Thunderbirds that had, quote-unquote, portable record players in the oh, back yeah, of the car. Those. Those. Those are you great. Still, yeah, yeah, you still see them at classic car shows. And it's like, uh, I don't know how well they'd travel. <laughs> But, yeah, yeah probably would be tough to sing along on a bumpy road, but I don't know. It, but I, but I hear you about the analog. You know, I've been almost exclusively a digital photographer for about ten years now, but I still shoot film from time to time, just because I physically like being able to look at work that I produced on a light box as opposed to it being ones and zeros in the cloud. Sure. Is there a an album or is there music maybe why even while you're out there photographing stuff do you have your earbuds in are you listening to stuff something that kind of keeps you going these days i don't listen to music while i'm actually photographing because i do like to be totally immersed in whatever it is that's that is being presented to me in the natural world i love to be able to hear the birds or to hear the wind or to hear the water and that really helps bring me into you know, the mindset that I need to be in to create art. But no, music is a huge part of my life. You know, when I was growing up, I, I played piano for God, 10 years, played the clarinet for six or seven. Um, and I listen to music constantly, you know, when I'm driving out to a location or, you know, when I'm in the office doing boring captioning and keywording of images or reminding clients that they need to pay me. Um, <laughs> the last vinyl I bought... Um, I don't buy a lot of vinyl because, sadly, I, I love the convenience of compact discs. Oh, sure. 
Um, but the last vinyl I bought was a great album from a, a woman named LP. And people know her work, but they don't know a lot of her. Um, and the album was live from the East West Studios. And I mean, every she wrote Rihanna's song, uh, Cheers to the Freaking Week and I'll Drink to That. Uh, you know, she's, she writes a lot of like huge pop hits, but her own style is very um, kind of bluesy rock and just has this huge, powerful voice that um, just makes you feel like what she's singing about. And she's working on a new album now that I think is going to be out in January or February. And I actually downloaded a couple of the MP3s from it. And that is just incredible work. So if you haven't heard of LP, I think that she's somebody that um, is definitely worth checking out. So that was just a little preview of Kevin Eby. You will hear more from him on the next podcast. I wish you will check that one out. It is cool. It is awesome. That's right. I said it. I'm cool. I'm awesome. Of course, I'm neither of those things. But the podcast is. I just am a part of it. And uh, hopefully some of its coolness and awesomeness will rub off on me. For now, this is Kevin. Get off my lawn. This has been the Get Off My Lawn Podcast, brought to you by Kevin's Bookmobile. Check out www.lulu.com forward slash Marusik for a selection of books authored by your genial host. Buy a paperback or download an ebook and help support the podcast. That's www.lulu.com slash M-A-R-O-U-S-E-K. And by our tip jar. Like what you've been hearing on the show so far? Want to hear more? Then help us out by going to getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com, clicking on the tip jar, and donating to the cause of creativity. No amount too large, no amount too small. That's getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at getoffmylawnpod. Check out our SoundCloud at getoffmylawnpodcast or subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest episodes questions or comments to suggest a guest or to offer us fat wads of cash in exchange for promotional consideration our email address is getoffmylawnpod at gmail.com the theme was composed and performed by brian weideman check out his music at www.worldbride.com that's w-o-r-l-d-b-r-i.com the logo was designed by julie Contreras at urban bird design go to urbanbirddesign.com to learn more Thanks for listening. Tell a friend.